hello and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's featured article of the month podcast for April 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts and Podbean. My name is Dr Sumit Das and I'm one of the journal education editors. This month's featured article is entitled Functional Near-Infrared Spectroscopy to assess pain in neonatal circumcisions. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome one of the authors of this article, Dr. Ian Yuan. Have I pronounced that correctly? Uh, Yuan, yep, close. Ian Yuan, apologies, who is a pediatric anesthesiologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania, USA. Welcome to this podcast and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Uh, can I start, Ian, by asking what prompted you and your colleagues to write this article? Uh, yes, um, we were interested in finding an objective way to assess pain that takes into account of the brain's responses to uh, nociception. Uh, specifically, as we all know, in neonates, undertreated pain can lead to increased pain sensitivity later in life. On the other hand, too much analgesia has its own safety risks that we're all familiar with. So to maintain that fine balance, an accurate assessment of pain is important, although difficult, especially in neonates. A lot of conventional tools that we use to assess pain, such as NIPs, CRIs, rely on behavioral and physiological scores. Uh, FNIRS, which is what we use in the study, allowed us to assess the changes in brain hemodynamics as a response to nociception in real time. So ultimately, as a pediatric anesthesiologist, uh, I'm interested in FDR's responses in an anesthetized neonate. However, there were just too many confounders like opioids, uh, type, and dose of uh, anesthesia use. So after discussing with the uh, neonatologists at our hospital, they suggested studying newborns getting circumcisions under local anesthetic. Since this population is generally a healthy, heterogeneous population, and they're undergoing a procedure that consists of very discrete steps. Thank you. Um, can you explain briefly the concept of functional near-infrared spectroscopy? Um, yes, I'll first try to explain near-infrared spectroscopy, which is NIRS, before going into functional NIRS. The best way to explain this is probably to use um, an analogy of a postdoc, since most of us are familiar with that. Both NIRS and a postdoc measure the relative concentration of oxy and deoxy hemoglobin. And both of them need three things to work. We need a light emitter, which in a post-ox is a red light that you're familiar with seeing. We need a tissue to shine the light through and also a detector to collect the remaining light that was not absorbed or scattered by the tissue. Now, oxyhemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin absorb lights at different frequencies. Oxyhemoglobin absorbs more of the infrared light which is at a longer wavelength, whereas deoxyhemoglobin absorbs more red light at around a shorter wave wavelength. Because of a difference in these light absorptions between oxy and deoxyhemoglobin, the postsox and NIRS use two lights, one in the red and one in the infrared region. Using these two lights, we can calculate the ratio of oxy versus deoxyhemoglobin to determine the percentage of oxygenated blood. Now, you're probably thinking, what's the difference between post-ox and nearsin? So post-ox primarily measures arterial oxygenated blood concentration, and they do this by subtracting out the background, um, the non-post part of the blood, 
whereas typically NIRS measures blood that is about 70% from a venous compartment. So now that we've gone over um, NIRS, basic NIRS, we'll go over the distinction between NIRS and functional NIRS or FNIRS. So typically the NIRS that we're familiar with uh, or the ones that we use clinically output a number that represents the percentage of oxygenated hemoglobin, similar to a postox. This number is typically an average over the past few seconds. Now, FNIRS uh, outputs a relative change from baseline of hemoglobin, oxyhemoglobin, and deoxyhemoglobin directly without any of the signal processing. The plus side of this is that FNIRS samples at a much higher frequency and can be used in real time. And this way we could use in our research to determine changes uh, as a result of functional activation that can be due to stimulation. By functional activation, I mean the increase in blood flow and metabolism to certain parts of our brain due to increased um, neuronal activity. Okay, and how did you go about conducting this study? So we collaborated with the neonatologist with the staff at the newborn nursery. The um, physician assistant who performed all the circumcisions in the study would help us screen for eligible patients. And after consent, uh, the baby will be taken to the procedure room and these are done awake with just local, and I would attach the FNIR sensor along with a postdoc to the baby. An iPad was then set up to videotape the baby during the entire procedure so that we can score the NIP score afterwards. And there were eight events of interest to us during the circumcision. Number one is when they, um, when they take the alcohol pad to prep um, the skin before injecting local. Number two is the local injection. Typically, they do a, a penile block. And number three is uh, skin prep before incision. Number four is oral glucose or sucrose that they put on a pacifier in the baby's mouth. Number five is incision, which uh, basically is forceps applied to the foreskin. And this is typically a sharp type of nociception. Six is when they attach a hemostatic device. In this case, they use a gum cold clamp. Seven is when they twist on the Gunkope clamp, and that typically is associated with a lot of intense pressure or pressure sensation. And the final one, eight, is when they take Gunkope clamp off and remove it. So at the start of each of these eight events, we would mark the FNIRS recording in real time so that we know on the recording when the events occurred. And then during analysis, data analysis, we would look at the changes in oxyhemoglobin and total hemoglobin before compared to after each event. And finally, an experienced pain nurse practitioner would review each of the recordings, uh, video recordings, to score the highest NIP score uh, during before and after each event. Uh, finally, we also determine the correlation between changes in FNIRs and NIPs for each event. Thank you. Um, how did you address the thorny issue of ethics in studying neonatal patients and what were your findings? And there's always a concern of consenting a postpartum mom who just had a baby who's probably sleep deprived and tired. Uh, fortunately, our study was observational in nature and the risk of harm from the FNIRS device was very low. Uh, we also partnered with the physician assistant who was doing a circumcision and she would pre-screen the patients for us to see if the patients were interested in participating in the study. I, as a main investigator, obtained consent for every single um, baby as well from the family. And for our listeners, can you suggest the clinical implications of your findings? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, so from our findings, generally, we found that FNIRS signal increase with nausea simulation 
and decrease with non-NASH assimilation. But generally, we found that changes in FNIRs and NIPs increase or decrease in the same direction, but there was only fair positive correlation between them. So specifically, uh, we found three things. We found that the magnitude of the FNIRs changes varied with the type of stimulation. For example, sharp pain, when local injection was injected, was associated with the, the largest uh, response in FNIRs. Pressure pain had less response. And since most previous uh, FNIRs pain studies focused on just one nausea stimulus, uh, such as a heel stick or a vaccine injection, this really broadens the range of nausea stimuli that can be monitored by FNIRs. Point number two is um, local, we found that local anesthetic was able to attenuate subsequent uh, FNIRs responses to sharp pain, but not so much to pressure pain. Um, local anesthetic, however, had no effect on NIRs. And the last point is we found that NIR and NIPS observed changes uh, in certain events, such as incision, taking off the gumco, that were not seen in FNIRs. Conversely, in FNIRs, we observed changes in events, such as prepping the skin before incision, that were not seen in NIPS. So in terms of clinical implications, I think the two take-home messages for these findings um, the first is that different types of noxious stimuli can cause different changes in FNIRs, potentially paving the way to quantify the quality of pain. The second is that uh, nociception is processed in the infant brain, can be processed in the infant brain without a behavioral response. And conversely, um, interventions that we think can decrease pain, such as oral sucrose, uh, can reduce NIP scores, which is a clinical pain assessment, without actually reducing brain activity. Uh, this suggests that FNIRs in the future may be able to complement NIPS or other traditional pain scales to provide a more complete picture of pain assessment. Okay, you mentioned that this study focused on awake neonates. Um, would you agree that an important next step is to determine whether and to what extent the central nociceptive processing is maintained under anesthesia? Uh, yes, so as a pediatric anesthesiologist, that's our ultimate goal. Uh, we first started with awake neonates, um, specifically because it's under a control environment to understand their FDR's responses to nociception. The second thing we wanted to, to test out is to make sure that we were able to get an adequate response in the uh, frontal area, the frontal cortex of the brain, since most of the previous recordings were done in the somatosensory uh, area of the brain. From my reading, you mentioned that one of the difficulties is, is creating a stable and efficient optical interface with the scalp uh, in the presence of hair. So does this mean that this technique is, is limited to neonates? Uh, not necessarily. I think the majority of FNIR studies are done in adults. Um, a lot of them are done in the frontal cortex. In neonatal FNIR study, there's less... Um, and I think one thing that we did find from a study that is helpful is that the frontal cortex, which is where we uh, monitored, which is typically also hair-free, uh, is able to provide us with valid FNIRS recordings, uh, similar to recordings done on the somatosensory area, which typically has a lot more hair. So maybe in the future, a lot, um, not a lot, but some other studies can, can measure and monitor the frontal cortex as well. What's the next step, would you say, in this area? So I think the next step, um, one would be to expand into anesthetized neonates, um, which is one of our goals. Uh, from collaborating with a neonatologist, I think they're having their own 
um, issues with pain assessment as well um, in, the, in the NICU, in the neonatal ICU. So another um, possibility is to collaborate with them and expand into monitoring uh, babies in a neonatal ICU while they're undergoing procedures. Uh, oftentimes, they may be awake. Oftentimes, they may be, they may be sedated um, during a procedure. Thank you so much, Dr. Yuan. This has been an interesting discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to chat, uh, and we look forward to more contributions from yourself and your team. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for April 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website shortly. Please do follow us on Twitter, on at uh, PD Anesthesia, and join us for next month's featured article of the month. Until then, cheers. <laughs>